This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Breakthrough or not, today on The Long View, we are focusing on the long road to finding the best way to treat Alzheimer's disease. Our contributing editor, Neil Milner, joins us in studio today. Good morning. Morning. So we're talking about this because there's news of a new drug on... There is a new drug that will be marketed soon. It's FDA approved, and it's called, the brand name is called Lakembi. Here's the situation. For many scientists and for many people active in the Alzheimer's movement, including the association, this is a breakthrough. For many other people, reputable scientists say not only is this not a breakthrough, but it shows how little we've learned about Alzheimer's disease and how low our standards are for saying something is a successful way of dealing with Alzheimer's. This drug, they argue, and I think with, with uh, some strength, is a drug that only works for people in the early stages. It has very little effect, and um, it's going to be costly in that there are some side effects. Now, no one on the other side is denying that, and that's where things get to be complicated. This is what the situation has been for a long time with Alzheimer's. And um, I based a lot of this discussion on Joanne Silberner's article, which is cited, I think you'll put it on your website. She's a former health reporter for NPR, very reputable reporter. Her father had a disease, and she's very uh, critical of what's happened in the Alzheimer's movement. And here's why. For many years, the dominant assumption we can call it a theory, was that it's about plaque, the plaque, let's say the plaque in the brain, and that if you could figure out how to get the plaque out of the brain, how to reduce it, you would then get people to essentially move toward a cure or actually cure Alzheimer's. There's always been a group that has said, look, that's a theory. It hasn't been proven very well, and in fact, there's lots of evidence to the contrary about this relationship. What's happened, and here's where it becomes the sociology of science rather than just test tube science. The problem was that over time, the amyloid theory, amyloids are the, the, the plaque creators, has become so dominant in the field that it was very hard for anybody who had another kind of theory to get money for research. You couldn't get published. Reputable science wouldn't help you. The federal agencies wouldn't help you. Some people call this a cabal. Um, Soberner says it's not so much a cabal. What it really is is what's called a paradigm. There's a group of reputable people who've gotten control, who see things one way, and are so sure that they're right that they see anything else as a deviation. The other side, remember, is not a bunch of quacks. It's not a bunch of people who say you can drink bleach and uh, COVID will go away. It's people that have a very different theory, have a lot of reasons to accept it, and say we can't find out anything more. Okay. So this is what happens. Now you've had two drugs in the past year or so that have been approved. One, which was uh, a Um which was approved by the FDA, was so controversial and so expensive that two things happened. A good number of the panel of, of advisors, medical advisors, resigned when the FDA approved of it. Um, and the drug is essentially a non-starter now because there's been some scandal involved about how it got approved in the first place. But the important thing to understand from what we're talking about here is that there never was proof before this drug was approved, that the reduction of the plaque really made a difference in behavior. They got it approved. The drug company got it approved on the basis of the fact that, look, the theory is plaque reduction. We showed that there was plaque reduction. That's enough for now approval of the drug. Right, right. So yeah. basically, this looked promising. It looks promising. Uh, and and yeah. you have people that say, well, don't waste your time on anything else. Well, that's right. It looks, but it's more than promising. It becomes definitive. So if you take a step back, which is what Sil Bernard tries to do, what she says is, look, and other, uh, other scientists have said this too, what this really shows is how limited our success has been in the fight against Alzheimer's. Because... Even if you grant the legitimacy of the plaque argument, 
All we know on the basis of that, and remember that there's been evidence that plaque doesn't do it. All we know on the basis of this recent drug that's going on the market that people are going to get and that people, uh, you know, that the people see as a breakthrough, all we know is that it worked only a little bit. It only reduces uh, certain memory characteristic problems by a very small margin. And um, it, it it's only works if you get it in the early stages, and it's not clear that it works for very long. That's progress, and and so it becomes progress if you see it as a breakthrough because it's an initial step in proving a theory that's right. It's not so much. It's going backwards if you see it as not showing anything at all, and that means that the theory is wrong. And then uh, how do you figure the the uh, big pharma, you know, the drug companies that are going to be making. Well, they're going to make a lot of money. I mean, the drug companies are not disinterested people in this. And as it's been argued that essentially they're they're concerned with their shareholders. You know, this is you know, this is about capitalism in the market. And you're supposed to have government regulation to prevent this from happening, which is what the FDA is supposed to do. But remember what's going on here. There's so many reputable scientists who have control over the amyloid argument, the plaque argument, that it's not just, you you just assume that drug companies are going to work very hard to prove that their product is okay, and that they're going to work very hard to show that the science has already shown this. But you need a a sector in society that, that questions this, and this is essentially what may not be happening. So it's quite possible right now that some, why, why some people see this thing as a breakthrough and other people think it's just, it's just small. You and I were talking about before, and let me just give one analogy to the war against cancer. When we had a war against cancer, that's what it was called, we found out early on this is not going to work because it's not cancer, it's cancers. That what you discover through the science is that there isn't one answer and that what we've made progress with cancer is to get individual treatments, individual approaches that were based on much more scientific evidence. We're talking about a war against Alzheimer's, but we don't even have not only the weapons to fight the war, it's not even clear what the strategy is. And so it really is a sort of depressing story to me about how little we've come forward. Well, you know, whether you're talking Alzheimer's or cancer or ALS, you know, I mean, there was that controversy just a couple months ago um, about, you know, what's the best treatment and and is it false hope? Is it, you know, but they don't have anything else. And so why not try it? Well, that's right. That's a whole other kind of argument. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I had that kind of disease, it goes like the apricot pits in Mexico. If you tried everything else and something the odds are something won't work, but so what? That's that's okay. That's a different kind of argument here, though. That's an argument that says, okay, this thing is not likely to work. There may be a side effect. What the heck? I'll try it because nothing else is working and nothing else is working for my loved one. This is a much more substantial argument about how you approach the knowledge about the disease and what is good knowledge and what is bad knowledge and how do you continue an inquiry and if you're stopping a group of if if you're so sure of a theory that you're stopping other kinds of research that to me under the circumstances seems to be a problem okay well neil milner happy new year and i hope (laughs) i hope you you and i don't get alzheimer's (laughs) (laughs) yeah thanks for the encouragement Catherine. Uh, we have been chatting with our contributing editor neil milner you can find links to uh, the article on our website later today Solving our housing crisis is going to be a big priority this legislative session. We get a preview of what's to come with the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair is on the line with us today. Good morning, Chad. 
Good morning, Catherine. So we've got a story by Blaze Level. I know he's busy tracking uh, other uh, sessions today. Uh, but, yeah, this was a, a hearing the other day where this came up. Yeah, it, it made a lot of news, a joint um, legislative hearing at the legislature, obviously. And it concerns um, what to do with that $600 million that the ledge approved last year for Hawaiian homelands. It was a, an enormous development. Uh, many people said it was long overdue. One of the biggest news stories out of the ledge of all last year. The problem was, is while the plan was to somehow speed up those 3,100 lots that they want to use for housing on homelands, well, Ikaika Anderson, the person that Josh Green appointed to run the the uh, DHHL, kind of poured cold water on that and said, you know, we don't have very many details about the spending plan, it could actually change. Anderson said he's got to check with the Hawaiian Homes Commission. He mentioned something about uh, rental housing, and he talked about maybe providing down payments. Uh, well, as you can imagine, this did not go over well uh, with these legislative leaders. Uh, as we all know if, and are always reminded, there's 28,000 people estimated at least uh, on the DHHL waiting list to get homestead land. Yeah, and you know, uh, you know, in all fairness, Ikaika has only been on the job not even two weeks Brand yet, new. right? Yeah. Brand new. <laughs> yeah. He hasn't met with the commission, and this was a, no. a kind of a, a general blueprint that William Isla put together. But you know, there are more people that want input in this. Right, and I, Anderson, of course, uh, ran for, uh, for lieutenant governor unsuccessfully last year, but former. Uh, Honolulu City Council Chair, Council Member, obviously very experienced, Native Hawaiian as well. And uh, I think the, the general consensus is, is that he's going to have to come back uh, and, and update the uh, the legislature when there's a more solid plan in place. And you mentioned that he needs to talk to the commission. That nine-member Hawaiian Homes Commission is critical. They, they, they oversee the Hawaiian homelands finances. Uh, and, of course, there's some 200,000 acres uh, of trust lands that are to be used for housing purposes. It's complicated. Infrastructure is a very big part of this. But you can tell in Blaze's reporting just how frustrated folks were. Uh, it appeared that Anderson and his staff were unprepared. They were like shuffling through papers trying to get the answers. This happens a lot, as you know, at the ledge, catching people unprepared. And yes, Anderson has only been on the job a short while. Keep in mind, he's also going to have to be confirmed by the Senate. So one wonders how much this might play into his confirmation hearings, which will be later this spring. But but some folks like uh, Michelle Kadani, the, the vice president there at the Senate, she was particularly upset, reminding uh, Anderson and his staff, look, people are dying waiting to be on this list. She used some pretty salty language as well, which um, uh, which I probably could say on the air, but I won't today. Okay. But let, put it, people can read it. <laughs> she was, yeah, you can read it. It is, it is in print, and, and um, I just don't want to violate any uh, any rules here. So. Well, you know, I, I know that there's lots of hope, right? I mean, we're almost, mm -hmm. uh, we're close to the Ebola drome uh, 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 development opening its doors, you know, and hopefully that'll get some families in uh, to some shelter here. But there's a lot that still has to be done. I mean, that's a lot of money to spend. Yeah, there is, and $600 million. And I should say, I was just actually uh, walking by the Bolodrome yesterday. I was having dinner nearby. Uh, that's in Mo'ili'ili. In, in fact, there, even though William Isla, uh, when he was chair, has negotiated to, I think it's something like 270 units they want to have there. Uh, and this is an example of, of rental property and so forth. Uh, it hasn't yet come to fruition. Anderson did point that it's not just the Bolodrome, the stadium, right? Mm -hmm. The old stadium site. Uh, but there's other projects, uh, rental projects. He also said this is a big priority uh, for the neighbor islands, uh, but he again cautioned, look, he's only in preliminary discussion, uh, hasn't really got concrete answers uh, or discussion with uh, the Hawaiian Homes Commission, so that's pretty important too. Hanging over this is also a deadline. There's a, as I understand it, by 20, uh, 26, yeah, 25, uh, there has to be this spending, this money has to be spent or it's not going to be used. Part of this is tied to the American Rescue Plan, right, at the federal level. And so that is a complication as well, sort of a, a um, an urgency hanging over uh, the new administration and Hawaiian homelands. So, uh, by the way, Anderson also said he's still talking with his boss, the Green Administration, on their input as well. Well, there's, yeah, $600 million for DHHL. There's two, 200 for, what was it, preschools. And, you 
you know, yeah. the, the one thing that popped in my mind was I hope the Department of Planning and Permitting <laughs> has their staff to start, you know, approving these permits because that money's got to right. be spent. Right. Of course, that's, that's another yeah, story. That's city, <laughs> it is another story, but one that will continue just as the Hawaiian Homeland Saga has continued since the since the 1920s, really. Yes. All right. Some stories just don't go away. But thank you so much, no. Chad. Sure, Catherine. Bye-bye. That was editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, to read Blaze-level Blaze stories on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Support sustainability reporting on HPR. Adela's Country Eatery in Kaneohe has been innovating ways to become more sustainable. I like ulu. Ulu is a lot of fiber. And I like moringa. Then the mix is kalo and Okinawa sweet potato and avocado. Donna Shapiro, general manager of the Hawaii Ulu Cooperative, says she's excited about the recent rollout of recipe-ready packs of Hawaii-grown staples. In addition to ulu, we have kalo, uala, and palaai, or pumpkin. We're really trying to make these products accessible for families in Hawaii, for everyday consumers. Hawaii imports over 99% of its staple foods, primarily rice, wheat, and potatoes. So by transitioning to eat more locally grown staples, you are making a huge difference to the food security of our islands, the economic resilience, the viability of farming. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Foodies Unite. A week from today, Francis Lamb takes the stage at the Hawaii Theater with local chefs to talk about the local food scene. The host of American Public Media's Splendid Table spoke with us from his home in New York City this morning. He's looking forward to next week as this will be his first trip to the islands. Lamb got an introduction to Hawaii as a cookbook editor for Maui chef Sheldon Simeon. Lamb is VP and editor-in-chief for the cookbook publishing division of Penguin Random House. I have to say, you know, I'm of several minds, right? I've never had the opportunity to come to Hawaii. That's mostly true. I was told that I did come when I was in utero. So uh, I don't know if that counts or not, but <laughs> I guess my parents took a baby moon and went there, you know, 40 some odd years ago. But I've never been able to see the place with my own eyes. And more and more, as I've learned about it and learned about the culture and certainly the cuisine, you know, I can't wait not just to come see it, but to really come taste it. You know, the food of Hawaii is fascinating. It's unique. It is, you know, I, I don't need to tell you this. You live there, you eat it, and you're, you're surrounded by the people who make it. But I just think um, it just sounds like such a unique culinary story, really, in the world. The combination of native Hawaiian traditions, ingredients, products, and the combination of communities that have come there over the years is just truly unique. And so, you know, really excited to taste local food there. Well, you know, I have a friend who lives in Long Island now. He was a news photographer here. And when I was going to take my first trip to New York, he said, you know, they call it the Big Apple. You just take it, you know, one bite at a time and, you know, come back. And so, you know, that's the way I think to enjoy Hawaii is that, you know, don't try and cram everything in. There's so many different islands to explore. And uh, we just want you to have a good time. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I do think that's a thing, right? It's like, oh, you know, a friend of mine said this to me many, many years ago, and it was one of the most, it was probably the best piece of advice I'd ever received as a traveler. And it was, if you like a place, just tell yourself you're going to come back. And so it frees you from that, oh, I have to go do everything. I have to see everything. I have to eat everything. I have to taste everything. Just be present in the moment not going to get to everything and just say I'll be back and once you do that you know you can let yourself be in the moment and I really am looking forward to that yes and sometimes you know the best meals come when you least expect it I mean I remember uh, driving down to Hana uh, on Maui the road to (laughs) the road to Hana and at the end of that you know a windy road trip we stopped at the the little store there and i had the best egg salad sandwich ever 
Uh, oh, that's so, awesome. <laughs> you know, it's those kinds of things uh, that you, know, you just I am can't waiting plan. for you to say what is the magic, you know, the, the, the magic pot at the end of the rainbow, yeah. the magic mixing bowl at the end of the rainbow, and you're like, I had the best egg salad sandwich ever. And I think that's exactly, <laughs> like, that's just, uh, that's awesome. That's so, that's so like, you, you know, it's not about mystique. It's not about, oh, what wonderful chef or what, like, lone fisherman who goes out there. It's just like, you know, that's actually one of the things that you, one of the moments that makes me so excited to be able to hear people tell stories about food and to help tell stories about food. The beauty of the world is often so unexpected and that can be so evident in our food stories. I love that. Like, I traveled to the end of Hana, which is like, you know, to, to the road to Hana, which is by all accounts paradise. And when I was there, it was just the best egg salad I ever had. Yeah, you know, <laughs> the simple things, just well done, and uh, and I remember it to this day. Uh, uh, but gosh, you know, uh, I have to share with our listeners, uh, because uh, the former co-host of this program, Chris Vandercook, he was he, he very reluctant to, to talk about it, but his mom was a celebrated, uh, you know, book editor, uh, Judith mm-hmm. Jones, and, uh, you know, you're a book editor, you know, and, and so, yeah, t- talk about, you know, what that's like uh, when, you, when you see all these cookbooks out there. How do you, you know, decide what gets the green light and what doesn't? Well, Sure. Well, I mean, one thing I think it's so interesting about cookbooks is on some level, they can be very useful, right? Like, I want to make dinner. Here's the thing that tells me how to make dinner. Great. Or I want an idea what to make for dinner. And I flip through this and I'm inspired on what to make dinner. And so that holds a special place in people's lives, in their kitchens, in their hearts. But they can be so much more than that as well. And I think finding what more we can do with that, not that that isn't enough, like that's exciting because I love to cook and I love to eat and I think people you know who enjoy cookbooks are in the same way Um, and that can keep you excited for a long time but continually asking well what else can a cookbook do or what else can a cookbook teach me or show me or how else can a cookbook entertain me is something that I you know never get tired of and seeing the creativity and the storytelling of authors come through and you know a great example is Sheldon Simeon who is a chef in Maui, and uh, I had the pleasure and honor of of editing his cookbook, Cook Real Hawaii. And I learned so much not just about the food of Hawaii, and one of the main things I learned was Hawaii food and Hawaiian food are not the same. And, you know, that was one one of the messages that I got from his book. And learning about the different communities that he grew up in and with and, and the Korean and, you know, in a, in a Filipino family, but also having Korean friends and Japanese friends and, uh, you know, the Portuguese influences and, of course, um, understanding and learning about Native Hawaiian ways of farming and producing food and, and the ways of being with the land and being with the sea that they have I mean, formed the backbone of this cuisine. You know, it's like it was such an eye-opening world-expanding experience. And then at the end of the day, I also got to, like, fry his mochiko chicken. You know, like, <laughs> you know, to hear his stories and to hear his laughter in the pages. So, you know, that's something that I find is so exciting when I get to see the world in a bigger or more different way through a cookbook or when I get to know or get the sense that I can get to know a person, get to know an author and the stories that they're telling us through the cookbook. You know, there are just so many ways that the cookbook can be in the world and entertain and inform us. You know, growing up, I didn't have that sense. Growing up, I think my sense of what a cookbook was, it was literally almost like an instruction manual. And I think more and more authors and more and more cookbook publishers are seizing the opportunity to use people's interest in food and help us see the world through that. Well, I had the opportunity to talk to the state librarian here, and oh, she cool. shared with me that, you know, one of the branch libraries had the best selection of community cookbooks. And, you know, when you think about the, the different ethnic groups that we have here, you know, w- whether it's, you know, the plantation recipes from the Japanese or the Okinawans or the Filipinos or the Chinese, you know, that just that those rich <laughs> recipes, you know, which kind of hold on to you know, the best of, you know, their homeland, you know, from from places far away. And so that just really intrigued me, you know, those community cookbooks. Yeah, for sure. 
And I love that too because that the, you know what I was just talking about was from an editor and, per, and publisher's perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Um, from the perspective of people who are receiving proposals from authors who you know want to sell their book and we're going to you know publish it and put it in the marketplace. But when you're talking about community cookbooks, what's wonderful about those is they're so grassroots. It's not about someone trying to make a commercial decision. It's not about, oh, how many copies of this can we sell? It's about people who are trying to share what they're making at home with one another, be it in their church, in you know, a neighborhood organization, or you know, some sort of social club or whatever. And I think community cookbooks are actually such a rich, kind of a living history. You can sort of see, if you take a community cookbook from today, from 2023, and take a community cookbook from you know, 1976, and take one from the same place in 1953, you're going to see totally different worlds. And how, not, not just worlds in a way that you would read about in history or watch a documentary, but really in the day-to-day of how people are living their lives. I think that's so not just interesting, but important for us to be able to hold on to and pass to one another. Yeah, uh, I recently did a, a, a story a spotlighting an eatery on Oahu's Windward Shore, and uh, they were saying, oh, yes, a lot of our recipes come from the Hongguanji cookbook, <laughs> you know? Oh, cool. And I just thought that was the neatest thing because, you know, the, the eatery is so popular these days, and it, you know, they were just going back to these traditional recipes, tried and true, you know, that, that resonates with the community. Yeah. You've had a little intro <laughs> because of, you know, your experience editing uh, Sheldon's cookbook. Is there anything that you're looking forward to trying while you're here? Oh, my God. Well, I mean, so many things for whatever reason. Maybe it's because it's, uh, yeah, I'm smelling the smell of coffee in my apartment right now. So the first thing the first thing that comes to mind is, boy, I'd love to try a real legit uh, malasada. My wife's family is Portuguese, so we're really excited to come try those. You know, poke has become such a probably misrepresented um, cliche, uh, certainly here in New York, and I think all over the mainland. I really want to come try it in you know in its in its home place. But more than anything, I really want like mac salad. <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited to come to eat like a legit mac salad. So many things about the local food that I, I am really excited to see. And it's funny because, you know, for many years, I think most mainlanders' experience with food in Hawaii, if they were coming as tourists, was eating hotel food, was eating resort food, which was, you know, sort of built to cater to their tastes. And... It wasn't until probably my lifetime where you had people who were saying, like, like, our food is awesome, too, you know, and, and we should be proud of our food, and we should showcase it and highlight it for us and for visitors both. And, you know, to be able to come see the food that has really fueled the people and the culture in its home place, be it in Hawaii or be it really anywhere in the world, I think is one of the great experiences of travel. It's something I would never not want to participate in, you know? So I'm really just psyched to come see, you know, after we get off this, I'm going to ask you where I should go eat. I mean, you told me last night about your your favorite Chamorro food truck, and I'm like, oh, dude, I want to go check that out. <laughs> well, you know, we are excited for you, and uh, I can't wait to talk to you on the other side of this trip just to see, you know, uh, what you thought of what what you tasted around town. But, uh, yeah, for sure. But thank you so much for your time this morning, and we'll, we'll see you on Wednesday. Yeah, right on. Well, thank you so much for having me. That was Francis Lamb, who will share the stage at Hawaii Theater with chefs Sheldon Simeon and Robin, uh, Robin Mai, as well as HBR's culture and arts reporter Gina Omai. Look for links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Support for HPR comes from BAMP Project. Bluegrass Folk Band, Trampled by Turtles with Tavana, performs January 13th on Oahu and January 15th on Maui. Tickets at bampproject.com and at mauiarts.org. Today on The Daily, in Brazil, many believed that once former President Jair Bolsonaro had left office, 
the threat of violence from his supporters would recede. They were wrong. We look at the storming of Brazil's capital. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about weekly drop-in art-making sessions for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. A Big Island abalone farm found itself with no way to export its product to Japan when the pandemic hit. CEO Satoshi Yoshida says with flights shut down, it had to develop the local market. Next week, Friday, it plans a soft opening of a new concept of grilling local food products. Kona Barbecue is where you will grill your own at the abalone farm at the Natural Energy Laboratory. Yoshida talked about those plans as well as the emphasis on local tours as it tries to up the profile of the seafood delicacy. You're trying to showcase not just the abalone, but lots of all the locally produced products. Yes. In Hawaii, very good food stuff is produced, like a shrimp or like a grass-fed beef in Big Island and the local veggies. Sure, abalone is too. So then we have good connection with those you know, producers. So then we will buy it from the producer and then we will supply it as a barbecue, you know, the food stuff. We believe we should support each other. Then we will collaborate with Michels uh, in Honolulu, in Waikiki. So they will prepare us, you know, their secret recipe for us. So either like a rub or like a dry seasoning, uh, like a sauce. So then people can enjoy with, uh, you know, the fine dining taste with the local food and a good viewing. So that's the plan. And then our goal is to let the people know how abalone is good. Yeah, that's our end of the, our goal. Because the pandemic shut down the export market to Japan, you folks felt the need to kind of up your profile in the community to kind of introduce abalone to the local residents here and to help the sustainability of the abalone because you don't find it anymore in the wild so much. Oh yeah, so we are the only supplier of Japanese kind abalone in the United States. So we are the only one. So the abalone all over the world, the abalone is faced to in danger with the overfishing. These 40 years, they used to be in the West Coast in the United States. There has a red abalone, it's very the big abalone is there, but it's gone 40 years ago and they never come back uh, since overfishing. So you're trying to uh, reintroduce abalone to the, the next generation. Tell us about the type of abalone that's grown here. What we are growing here is a Japanese kind Izo abalone. Izo is a traditional name for Hokkaido, so north, northern region. Since we have uh, deep sea water here, it's a cold and a pure water. So that's why, and, uh, and then we can raise Izo, Japanese abalone. So since it's the uh, most, you know, pricey, since it's a uh, very crunchy uh, roll, and the tender, and the soft, and once it's cooked. So since it's rich in collagen, so that's awesome food. So the plan is to have a soft opening for this kind of an area where people can grill their own and you're featuring local products. And then your plan next summer is to open then a visitor center. So you're trying to develop this more of the eco-tour, right? Because a lot of visitors are looking for things to do and they like science and they, and they care about sustainability. And so they want to learn about what's happening here. Oh yes, I think so too. We will, you know, do the interactive tour. We try to our best and then and the end of our goal of our business is to let the good food stuff to next generation with a sustainable way. Okay. That's our goal. Yeah. So what's your favorite way to prepare abalone? Oh yeah. So it's a bunch of uh, culinary techniques are uh, known in Japan. Uh, I, I learned uh, over 100 culinary techniques. One of my favorite is do the tempura. 
So tempura is a deep fry with a flour. So it's very yummy. <laughs> so, but uh, the, most people here uh, is the, the barbecue greeting. Right. So that's simple right. and that's a, the best way for the people. Right. It's very tasty and add any uh, seasons. Abalone is very good, so you must try the grilled abalone. That was Satoyoshi Yoshida talking with us about growing the abalone business. Back here on Oahu at the farmer's market at Kapilani Community College, there was a line of 50 people waiting to try freshly grilled abalone flown in from Kona. We talked to a couple of longtime fans and some adventurous foodies. So you're here in line, you, you've had abalone before? Uh, yes, I've had in like prepared in more Chinese style. How is that? I think it's more um, soft because they braise it for hours on end. It's more like a stew rather than um, steaming or grilling it. Then that's just how I know abalone. Okay, so you haven't had it grilled like this or steamed? No, I haven't. Okay. I'm going to try it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm here to try it. I used to eat abalone when I lived in Japan, where it's much more expensive than here in Hawaii, and I think a little tougher, too. So when I discovered that um, it's so easy to find here uh, and is also more tender and more reasonably priced, I was very happy. And so you, you make this a regular stop when you come it's here? It's one of my regular stops at the farmer's market. And on New Year's Eve at the Kapahula Retail Store on the edge of Waikiki, canned, steamed, and fresh abalone were in high demand. It was crazy busy the day before uh, they had apparently sold out of fresh abalone an hour and a half after opening. So plan ahead if you intend to include it for your Lunar New Year celebrations. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. We've got the song of the shy Japanese bush warbler, thanks to the Mokale Library at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. Japanese bush warblers are small, mostly brownish songbirds with a distinct white eyebrow or superciliary line above their eyes. Because they spend most of their time in dense understory vegetation, they're really hard to see, but it's their loud, very distinctive song that gives them away. There are two main types of song. The first has a long introductory whistle ending in a syllable. The second is mostly a long descending series of double notes. Known as uguisu in Japanese, they're one of the best known and loved songbirds in Japan. And after a long winter, that song is viewed as one of the first signs of spring. It's sung only by the males to advertise their territories and try to attract females. These birds are also highly regarded for their droppings, which are the main ingredient in a very effective skin cream that's been used in Japan for centuries. Hawaii is the only place in the world where Japanese bush warblers have become established outside their natural range. They were first introduced to Oahu in 1929 to control insects, and expanded on their own to all the other main Hawaiian islands, most recently making the long flight to the Big Island in the 1990s. Sexes are similar in plumage, but the males are almost half again as heavy as the females. Unlike most other songbirds that are monogamous, male Japanese bush warblers are polygynous, where a male sets up a territory and pairs up with multiple nesting females. Japanese bush warblers are found in a variety of native and non-native forests across the state and seem particularly attracted to areas of dense uluhe fern, where there are often very few other bird species. We still don't know a lot about their ecology here in Hawaii, but at least for now, they don't seem to be having a significant negative impact on our native birds or forests. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. 
Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, offering guided nature adventures on Hawaii Island, designed to help inspire connection and stewardship of the land. More information at hawaii-forest.com. Aloha, this is Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. Join me for a live taping of The Splendid Table on January 18th at the Hawaii Theater in Honolulu. I'll be talking with Hawaii's outstanding chefs and tastemakers about the diverse food culture of the islands. So get your tickets at hawaiipublicradio.org slash events. Hope to see you there. Co-presented by HPR and the Culinary Institute of the Pacific. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. that Hawaii is the only U.S. state where cacao can be farmed. In fact, Hakalau on the Hamakua Coast has been called the Napa Valley for chocolate due to the number of cacao farms and chocolate makers. The Conversations Lillian Song caught up with science writer Raven Hanna, whose newly published guide titled One Cacao Tree is aimed at hobbyists who would like to make chocolate from homegrown cacao pods or bought at the farmer's market. Cacao is a tropical plant, and it only grows between the two tropic lines. So we are kind of considered the North Pole of cacao here because, you know, we're, we're just kind of right on the line. And the master gardeners at UH Hilo recently were able to take control over the cacao tree orchard there. Most are seedling trees. But there have been experiments through the University of Hawaii to grow actual varietal trees. And these are clones. So these are trees that somebody at some point in time, at some place in the world decided, this is a really amazing fruit. I want to reproduce this fruit exactly. And so they take a branch and they graft it onto another tree in Hilo, we have a orchard full of these grafted trees that come from all over the world. It's really cool to like find out their histories from Ecuador or the Philippines or Chile or we have a couple from Ethiopia. And just to kind of think about the history of people and this plant, it just sort of boggles your mind. I started making chocolate from those trees and bringing it in to my fellow volunteers. And they absolutely loved it. And they wanted to know how they could do it themselves. So I started sending people home with pods and some directions. And they came back with, you know, wonderful nibs and chocolate. And I thought, gosh, there really should be a resource out there, a book to teach people how to make chocolate at home. And so I decided that I would go ahead and write one. Well, your energy, your experience really comes through the page, each chapter, with the pictures, just explanations. As a person who loves process, I appreciate seeing those pictures of fermenty, sticky cacao pods. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to take on a new task like that, you want to see what you're getting yourself into. And when you're in the middle of it, you want to see what it's supposed to look like so you know you're doing it right. My goal was to have beautiful photos that also conveyed information because it is hard to describe directions just by words. You can thumb through the book and enjoy learning about the process of cacao, but if you actually want to get into it, the photos will really help you along to see if what you're doing matches up to what I have done and helps you know what the product is you want to reach and how to perform each step. Chocolate is a fermented product. It is through the fermentation that you develop the wonderful chocolatey flavors that we all love. It is true that it's hard to get a good ferment with just a few pods. And that actually is easily solved by adding additional heat to the process. And there's a number of ways to do that. 
what I've detailed in the book is a very simple way, just using a cooler and some mason jars. And once you have the fermentation down, then the rest is sort of straightforward. Okay. Patience. How much patience do I need for this process? A little bit of patience definitely helps. When you crack the pods and you extract the fresh fruit, which is delicious, by the way. Everybody in Hawaii should try the fresh cacao fruit. There's no excuse. You can pick one up at the farmer's market. And then from cracking the pods, getting the fruit and fermenting it, that is about, I would say, seven to 10 days of fermentation. And then beyond that, you dry the seeds for another seven days or so. Some people let the seeds sit for about a month, but you don't have to if you're super impatient. Then you roast and winnow. You crack open the shell and you separate it from the nibs inside. What's cool about this is you can go on and use those winnowed shells as a tea, or you can actually infuse them in alcohol and make an elixir too. So it's not exactly a waste product. And then you can use the nibs or you can make chocolate. If you do decide to go the route of actually grinding your own chocolate for bars and confections, then it's usually in the grinder for about one to three days. And the grinder you're talking about is just like my coffee grinder? So you can use your coffee grinder or a really nice blender to process the cacao, but you're not going to get the silky, smooth chocolate from a chocolate bar. You're going to get like the Mexican chocolate that has a little bit of graininess to it, which is totally delicious, and some people prefer that. In order to get the very smooth chocolate that we're used to, you need to use a special machine called a melanger, and it's a stone-on-stone granite grinding machine. You can also use it for other purposes like making coconut butter or macnut butter. So it is definitely something to consider if you are interested in making really nice, smooth chocolate. One question that comes to mind right now is fermented versus unfermented. What's the difference? Yeah, this is so interesting. In the United States, we are most used to fermented cacao beans. That's where we get that nice chocolatey flavor. But in other countries, including countries that where the cacao tree grows native, they use unfermented beans as well as fermented beans. But if you don't want to ferment, if you don't like bacteria, if you don't want things to get messy, then simply washing and drying the beans, you can get an unfermented cacao product that you can use. And in your guide, you definitely share recipes throughout to excite the imagination. Give our listeners an example of an unfermented product that we could do. Unfermented beans, you would treat very similarly to fermented beans. So after drying, you roast them and then grind them up and make drinks. And actually, a happy discovery was mixing poi with cacao makes a delicious and super healthy drink. You can have it hot or cold. So that's certainly something to try or mix it with anything else you'd like, cow's milk or coconut milk, almond milk, and spices like allspice, cinnamon, clove, chili pepper. There's so many different ways to try chocolate drinks. Well, you've really opened my eyes. I did buy a cacao tree with these fantasies of, yeah, chocolate, but it's not that like I can just wave a wand and all of a sudden my cacao pod will turn into chocolate. As I'm following your guide and just seeing how the steps are laid out very clearly, it sounds so doable, but it will take commitment and will also just take that dedication to make space because I'm sure my family would be not very happy if I were to take over the kitchen. (laughs) For your own chocolate making, where are you processing it? Yeah, I process it in the kitchen. And sometimes I use, well, I'm often using the guest room. (laughs) Fair warning. It is a hobby that can take over your life for sure. But 
honestly, to just do a fermentation. You can use a cooler, dry them out on a bucket in the yard or on your balcony, and roast them in the oven and make nibs is minimal space required. And if you're interested in chocolate, if you love figuring out where your food comes from and you love growing your own food, then it's certainly worth at least doing that part of the process. So you're such an approachable person. You have a science background that really comes through in your writing. You're great about anticipating some questions or things that people might be asking. And you're like, here it is. In this part of the process, this is what you'll be looking for. This is what you should be doing. There's a great opportunity for listeners that if they are on the Big Island, that they could actually talk to you in person. Yes, I'm going to be at the Master Gardener Plant Sale. It's on January 29th. There's always a really great turnout. And I will be there all day. I'm happy to answer any questions about any part of the process. If you have tried fermentation before and have questions, then please come and see me and I will do my best to answer everybody's questions. Cacao has something for everybody. You might find that you just like to grow the tree on your balcony and it makes you happy to see it and that's great. Or you might find that you like to, you know, buy other people's pods or buy other people's beans and then take it further along in the process. I have found so much delight in this plant and encourage people to explore. That was HPR's Lillian Song and chocolatier Raven Hanna, author of One Cacao Tree, A Guide to Backyard Cocoa, Tiny Fermentations, and Chocolate Making in the Tropics. Hanna will have a booth at the Master Gardener's Plant Sale in Hilo Sunday, January 29th, where the book will be available. We'll share photos and links on the conversation page of our website later today. Well, we have to go now. We're out of time. But up tomorrow, we continue Aquaculture Week and visit a seahorse farm. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online by searching for the Conversation Podcast, also on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 